You are now listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast, where the worlds of sports medicine and performance collide. My name is Mike Quintins. I'm a physical therapist with an entrepreneurial mindset that specializes in treating orthopedic and sports injuries. I'm bringing on the brightest and sharpest in the field of sports medicine to share their best practices and explore the gap where medicine meets performance. What's happening, Performance Therapy Nation? This is Mike Quintins, your host of the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast. Today, we are joined by Jesse K. Wright, a high-performance consultant, Amazon best-selling author, former NBA, NFL, NCAA, and private sector sports performance professional. Jesse spent 14 years with the Philadelphia 76ers as a head strength and conditioning coach, then director of performance science. Today, we are getting into Jesse's path to strength and conditioning, changes in strength conditioning over the years, load volume management in pro and youth, youth athletics, and probably what I'm most looking forward to discussing Jesse's book titled The Intent to Grow. But before we get into the discussion, I would like to thank the listeners. Yep, you guys listening right now. Thank you for tuning in. I do have one ask. I depend on your feedback. So when this is over, go, go to the, the bottom of the page that this is playing on, tap the three little dots, that are in a row at the bottom of the screen. Tap the go to show option, scroll to the bottom and share your thoughts. Thanks in advance. Our guest, Jesse Wright, has held strength conditioning coach positions with Temple University, the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, the Barcelona Dragons and the NFL Europe, uh, Hofstra University Football and St. Joe's University. He has served as a director of Summit Sports Training Center, uh, a group of sports performance facilities located outside Philadelphia, PA. He has an exercise science degree from Temple University, a master's of high performance sport degree from Australian Catholic University uh, via the NSCA, the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Jesse has, uh, is, certified, is a certified strength and conditioning specialist, CSCS, and a registered strength and conditioning coach, uh, Emeritus, am I saying that right? Uh, RSCC uh, uh, Asterisk E, and I'm, I'm not very familiar with that, so I'm going to have to learn more about that, but I would imagine that's like getting your PhD in strength conditioning. <laughs> Named to the NBA Strength Conditioning Coach of the Year in 2013, served as president of the National Basketball Strength and Conditioning Association from 2013 to 2015, and for six years, Jesse served as the chair of committee that oversees and coordinates uh, the orthoprometric and performance testing for the NBA pre-draft combine. Uh, like I said, Amazon best-selling author of two books, including one we will be discussing today, The Intent to Grow, and is also the founder of Balance the Bar Initiative. What did I miss there, Jesse? You covered covered the interesting <laughs> stuff, that's for sure. So, uh, And father to, uh, and what's your son's name? Brandon. Brandon. Yeah, ten, right. Ten-year-old son, soon to be 11. Uh, and that most importantly. Uh, that's right. <laughs> the, the, easily the credential I'm most proud of. Heck yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I, yeah, that. That's serious. That's cool, man. Uh, thank you for joining us. Um, I hope I didn't butcher that too, too much, but this is cool. I'm happy we're doing this. You nailed it, right? <laughs> Organic is best. And uh, thank you for having me. I'm excited. You know, we, we, we covered so much ground even before the podcast so that the conversation can just keep rolling. Yeah, that, actually, I enjoy that part the most about one of the most uh, about the podcast is it just it should flow conversation before should flow and after. And I often reference uh, conversations we had before you know, as long as that's good with you, but, um, I, please share with the, the audience, uh, and our listeners, what got you into strength conditioning? Yeah, probably a similar story to many that, you know, end up in a sports related or, or training related field, high school athlete, undersized high school football player that, you know, played a lot of sports as a young kid. And then, uh, maybe realization or, discovery. I don't know, as you get, I, because I was undersized, I, I, I wanted to compete, you know, as best as I possibly could. And I knew I needed to get as big as I possibly could at five, seven, my huge frame and, uh, and, and put some real time into the weight room and everything to, to at least accomplish what I wanted to for the team. So I, I joined the powerlifting team in the off season and got exposed to very, you know, fundamental but structured strength training, right? From a, a local powerlifting uh, master's deadlift champion. And he, he, you know, was great in those three events. And he did a great job training uh, a, a small group of football players that that's how we trained in the, in the off season, uh, right in his basement. And he, he had his own supplement line and everything. And it was, it was cool at, <laughs> at awesome. 
14 or uh, I think I was 15 when I started with him. Uh, you know, it, I had never had anybody write a program for me. I never really knew, aside from reading some books, like anything about program design or structure training. And that was eye opening to me. And I thought, ah, this would be a cool world to, to get into. And um, so I did, you know, set down a path and, I, you know, you start considering colleges and you, oh, well, what degree would put me in a position to be able to do that? And it's like exercise science or phys ed or kinesiology. And that's what I pursued. And, um, you know, got the degree at Temple University and got involved with their athletic department as a student equipment manager in my freshman year. So I, again, joke about this. I say this all the time. My first job in elite high level athletics was washing laundry. <laughs> and why did you take that? Why did you take that job? Guys, that is is awesome. Like the way you stumble into things, two guys that lived down the hall from me uh, and still great friends to this day asked me to play on their flag football team, right? Rec flag football yeah. in the middle of North Philadelphia, the big piece of turf, Gazy field, <laughs> temple university. And the whole team was made up of the student equipment managers. They all worked for the football <laughs> team and a couple of them, about, you know, so you play a couple of games and they're like, Hey, you should come work for us. Like, Hey, you know, it's cool. It's a great way. You get to be involved with the football team and everything. I'm like, this is awesome. Like <laughs> I didn't think I was going to play. I probably could have played at division three and just chose not to kind of thought I was ne never going to be associated with like team football again. And then this opportunity just kind of organically presented itself. So it was interesting. It was intriguing. And that was like my little toenail in the door with athletics and you meet the strength coach and you start seeing how those guys train. And, you know, one thing led to another, you volunteer, and then it just kind of continued down that pathway that led to some of the teams that you mentioned. So, so tell me, I'm dying for you to share this because I've heard you touch a little bit on it in previous podcasts that you've done your ability to be, um, patient and to take whatever opportunity was available to you and you know the equipment manager being one where does that come from for you like meaning the your ability to like okay i'll volunteer and then i'll be a, a grad assistant and then you know where does that come from i i don't know where the roots come from i just i i always remember even going back to again you know roots at high school football and some of the things I was interested in, even outside of athletics, I, I always remember being a, a generalist, I guess, right? Interested in many different things, played a couple different positions. You know, I, I, even with football and everything, I was open to playing a number of different positions and that that's how I ended up being viewed as a, a valued teammate, right? You were able to be plugged in where the team needed you. And I was always open to doing that. So I think that, you know, maybe through some level of marginal success at that time, or at least people recognizing that, that, that you know, it, it was an indication of, of, of being a valued teammate, somebody that people uh, looked upon that they would want you on that team. I, I think that led me to believe that you should continue to stay open-minded to opportunities. And that if you have that mindset, that that can maybe open up new doors, where if you're always kind of at least marginally considering what might else, what else might be out there, that that can lead to, to better things that you don't close your mind to things. So I think there's probably an answer in there somewhere. I don't know if I answered it directly, but your ability but, to adapt. But yeah, exactly. You know, it, that's I, I do remember always thinking that way for at least as long as I can remember back to high school, and I think that led to good things. You know, when opportunities came up, I remember like again, some people needed help with uh, in the academic support department, um, and it represented an opportunity to kind of do one more small job part time for the athletic department, and that got you in the door to meet one more person that, you know, number one, you could be helpful for, right? It was a, a, a paying job too, that didn't require a whole lot of time. And, um, I remember again, it was like that, that opportunity came about and I'm like, ah, I, I could do that. I took that class and I did fairly well. I could help someone else maybe do that, you know, for two hours a week or something. So just a, again, a small example. And, and as you do more of those things and you kind of expand your reach within an athletic department, I remember this, right? You start to like, you know, you meet new people. And if you do a, a good enough or a, a bang up job for somebody in the task that it is they asked you to do, whether it's doing laundry or whether it's, you know, it's my first opportunity in the, in a division one rate room. And I didn't do much other than what very other, plenty of other first time strength coaches do as, as an undergraduate assistant, you, you wipe down benches, right? And yeah. you rack plates and yep. you make sure you do a good job spotting dumbbells. If you're asked to, I didn't coach a whole lot at first, but do a good enough job at all of that. Right. And become a valued teammate in the, the, 
maybe menial is the word, maybe fundamental type roles that you're yeah. asked to do, you earn the opportunity to do bigger and better things. And that, that was exactly my story as a strength coach. I volunteered, I wiped benches, I, you know, mixed up creatine and, you know, for the players, made sure all the shelves were stocked and the refrigerator looked good and everything. And then the opportunity came to serve as like an on-staff undergraduate strength coach. And I went in and I asked if I earned the right to be hired. And, you know, after some discussion, they said, yes, that was my very first like kind of foray into being a, a, an actual strength coach so, at so, 20 years old. So, yeah. And so from that point <clears throat> forward, um, like, what drove you to push, push further limits? And were you having, were you experiencing success in some of your personal philosophies and, and what you, what you were learning at the time? Oh yeah. I mean, you're, you're taking, uh, you're, you're taking all of your undergraduate courses, right? So you, yeah. you're, you're taking your biomechanics and you're taking your motor learning and, you know, and now like different than many other people, right? Until you get that that internship deep into your, your four or five years, I was actually able to apply a lot of what I was learning in the afternoon. You go into the weight room for three hours and you get a chance to be a second or third set of eyes in training teams. And I actually was empowered to have some of my own teams as well. I didn't write yeah, any programs, cool. but, uh, but I was the person implementing them. So all of that was like super interesting, right? And, and you get to learn the philosophy and the science and the research behind it and actually implement it at the time. So that was everything. And it just made me want to continue to, you know, it was like, Oh, I found my world. I get to work in sports and using my degree and I'm learning and I work with great people in a really cool environment. And like, I want to do more of this, you know, and I had my sights set on, on an NFL internship. I like every other degree, you have an internship, that you, some hours that you have to require. And I had my sights set on doing that in the NFL. Yeah. And you got a chance to do that with the I did. I did two, two straight years, both, you know, the equivalent of your junior and senior year. I remember dating ourselves. It's always fun telling these stories, but it was before it was right around the time I, I, you know, I got my very first email address when I was a freshman and, and it was before people kind of knew what email was. I remember thinking like, Oh my God, this is really cool. I had a friend at like UVA and I'm like, Oh my God, I don't have to write a letter to them. I can actually contact. And the email address was like easily like 27 characters long. Like it was like at temple dot, 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 you know, it was crazy. But, um, I say that because it, for two straight years, I remember during the super, right around this time, two straight years uh, of the calendar, cover letter, typing it out, right? Resume, typing it out, signing it, stuffing envelopes to all 30, I think there were 32 NFL teams at the time, uh, and finding, you know, on, and it wasn't online. There were books that you had to look for and trying to find uh, the addresses of NFL strength and conditioning coaches and mailing a letter, you know, the request to be on staff as an intern, uh, got a handful of replies the first year, but all saying, no, we don't have any positions available. Either you're too late or we don't have interns. Uh, and then the second year I did, it I actually got three responses, you know, three positive responses. One of which was the Eagles and Tampa Bay and Carolina were the other ones. Where were you yeah. academically at this point? Were you, um, you had finished the undergrad. You said not yet year? in fi final final year of undergrad. Okay, yep, gotcha. Yep, where you have right. to satisfy that internship, you know, that internship to, to complete the degree. Yeah. Okay. So yep. uh, so how did you pick the Eagles? Local. Yeah. You know, it was. You know, think, no one has any money at the time. Like I would have loved to have the resources to pick up and move to Tampa Bay for <laughs> a semester. Right? Did you, yeah. Did you say no to that. <laughs> yeah, but no, that one fit. I didn't have to leave my apartment. Or <laughs> stay with my roommates and everything. It worked. And you know, you grow up as you know Pennsylvania kid. You're an Eagles fan. It's like cool. I get to go to work at Veterans Stadium. That's awesome. So, 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 what's your biggest takeaway from your time with the Eagles? Oh, uh, almost from day one, it was a it was a difference in philosophy. Right. So what we did at the time at Temple was like by the book platform, every version of Olympic lifting, right? Both clean grip and snatch grip, you know, periodized multi-set model right out of the, the Tudor Bompa periodization right. and, you know, some of the NSCA journals at the time. We'd spend one, two entire days a week on the platform doing all of your, you know, your variations and progressions of Olympic movements and then two generally strength days and you, you weaved in your speed and speed and agility into those. And then I moved on to the NFL and about half the NFL at the time was doing high intensity training, single set to failure training, you know, tra traditional hit work. So I, I walk in and, and it was an eye opener to me, right? Everybody leaves their first experience thinking, you know, everything about training an athlete, sure. like everyone must train exactly like we did at Temple. And then I walk in there and there wasn't a squat rack in the whole weight room. 
right? There was a, there was a lot of hammer strength machines, right? There was a lot sure. of, there were, yeah, there was a lot of Nautilus, right? And I was hot then. dumbbells and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. And the, the philosophy was like, you know, train individual muscle groups to momentary muscular failure. And we're going to produce ridiculous strength gains, uh, through that philosophy. And that's how we're going to get our guys better. Uh, a, okay. and they, and they implemented it great, right? I, I learned so much from both of my, you know, the two strength coaches, Tom Canavy was kind of my, my direct report. And then Mike Wolf was the head strength coach at the time, learned a ton from them. Right. But just a, a, a different set of information that I learned from my previous two and a half years at Temple with that philosophy. And it was awesome. So that, you know, my big takeaway was like, there's a lot more out there than what I thought I knew. Right. Oh yeah. I had to know everything at 23 years old and sure. spending time in one program. Right. Yeah. Like we all think, but that was an eye opener. And it's like, okay, well, there's a lot of different ways to successfully train an athlete. And there's probably even a lot more than the two that I experienced at the time. Yeah. I, I, and we know that it's great. That's a great, um, that's a great takeaway. Uh, everything at temple it seemed to be at the time, at least it was by the book. It reinforced what you already knew and how you thought. And then with the, with the Eagles, completely different philosophy, soft school, soft skill question. How did you ask questions without insulting or uh, coming across as um, like you're questioning, but sure. But you're not stepping on toes. You're trying not to insult. It, it, it's a great question. And I, and I had like young and dumb on my side at the time. <laughs> like I don't know anything about anything. So that's generally how you can table okay. every question. It's like, coach, I don't know anything about this. If I ask a dumb question, it's literally because I don't, I'm, I, I'm trying to learn. And they knew that it was, it was environment like that. And they, and they, again, like they, they spent a lot of time. So single set training is unconventional, right? A lot sure. of guys did come in from multi-set programs sure, and question it. So there was like a little bit of buy-in that they had to be really good and almost like, you know, for lack of a better word, a sales pitch that you had to sell that philosophy to guys that came in used to laying, you know, getting under a squat rack for five sets per day. Right. And RDLs and a lot of the closed chain stuff. And, and, uh, then you walk in and you don't, you know, you you're, you're you're literally sitting on machines almost the entire workout, right? And and they got very good at that. They got very good at explaining it. They were unbelievable at, at um, implementing their philosophy in a way that was first effective, second safe for an NFL athlete. And they were really good at it. And you, you got a chance to learn just by how they explained it to people. But then they were both amazing with, you know, they had a structured internship program. They would pull a lot of people. Actually, they kind of had this like factory for a long time from Westchester university, right. And their, really. their oh, program, that's where they, 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 they would take a lot of interns from there. Yeah. And, and the, you know, they've been around the block. They brought interns in, they, they valued them as a, you know, third and fourth set of eyes for their programming. And, you know, it worked. Yeah. Interaction with the athletes, given the, the change in their program, did you have any observations with that? Like in terms of athletes saying, well, I just came from this completely different strength conditioning program that I was doing back home. Yep. Like, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Or, yeah. Or, I, you I, know I, what I mean? I probably wasn't party to some of those conversations. Right. I was only there a handful of hours yeah. a week. So, you know, they were the full-time guys. I, I guarantee that they probably had some type of like intake and a sit down with those guys to like get out, answer a lot of questions before they were even asked. And, you know, it's like, why don't you see a, an Olympic lifting platform in here right now and all that stuff. So they, they probably addressed a lot of that uh, yeah. before, before I even got there. But, but again, like like the rookies were my age at the time and they would, they would pull me off to the side and they would go, Hey, you know, why don't we do this? And, you know, I came from this program and I have this reference point. That's with, a tough with, spot to put you in. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. sure you weren't like, oh, I don't have no idea. I'm Young sure and you, dumb. <laughs> Young and dumb. Yeah. It's I like, like it's like, Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm the third or fourth guy in line. And, you know, let's just, we got to load your weights on. We got to do it. And, you know, it, never, ever divisive. And, right. And you can't be right. And, yeah. and, and truth be told, I, I valued the program I was working for. I was learning a lot. It was a brand new system. I still, to this day, use a lot of what I learned there. Uh, not, you know, fully adopted single set training, but there's, there's, there's parts of that philosophy that are super valuable. that are really good. Um, when you dose it in and when you implement it. So, you know, I, I, again, value and, and look back very kindly at that time for a number of reasons. Oh, that's yeah. uh, well said. And thanks for sharing that experience. I, I know that's, um, yeah, that's like some of your that's professional time, but personal too, because you're growing, you're developing new interactions and so forth. So thanks for sharing that. But what was next from there? Uh, oh gosh, the, the, again, another amazing opportunity, hopefully, you know, again, looking back, um, probably a product of, 
you know, the, the job I did with my time there, uh, chance to be my, f- the very first time to be a head strength coach in NFL Europe. So As a, I, and you just graduated school. Um, yeah, it was within the first year afterwards. Awesome. Yeah, I was 23 at the time. Um, so it was early again, my time with the Eagles was 99 into 2000 and no, I'm sorry, all of 99. And the opportunity came up for the NFL Europe season that lasted from March to June of 2000. Okay. And they basically kind of, he came to coach Wolf came to me. Mike Wolf came to me the, the one day and said, you know, we got this email, there's opportunity. There's six teams in NFL Europe and they're looking for, you know, young, you know, hungry head strength coaches that aren't going to make much money at all, but want to go over and, you know, run a program <laughs> for the first time for three months. And I said, Sign me up, you know, and raise my hand. And, and uh, it was interesting because I didn't even have to interview for it. It was like, if he put my name in, you know, they just, they were looking oh, for the, either man. the first six names or they valued his opinion forever. He would, for whoever he would refer, which is probably the more likely, more likely uh, reason behind it. And um, yeah, what, three months you, later, you're on a plane. We had training camp wild. in Orlando for a month and then you pick up and you go to your European city. And uh, again, you know, you look back and it was, I made, countless, countless mistakes, both in programming and everything soft skill and leadership related. I wasn't ready at 23 to be a head strength coach. Luckily it was a, a fairly tame environment to do it in. And, um, you know, you got five, 10, 10 game schedule and five of the away games you get to spend in other European cities. And Heck yeah. I, I was fortunate enough to get assigned to Barcelona. And that team just happens to live on the Mediterranean sea on the beach in a resort town called Sitges. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, literally from here to your TV over there is like our hotel to like a, you know, oh, a geez. Mediterranean sea beach. Yeah, what did you, great. what'd you learn about yourself during that time there? Cause I, I remember when I, my first year at a school, like, all right, I, you know, there, there's up for me at least some maturing. Um, you know, it, there are people out who don't maybe know some of the new stuff that's out uh, in terms of professionals. Uh, so, um, and you want to be respectful and you want to learn. You still want to learn, but you also want to demonstrate that you're competent. Yep. Right. Yep. So, so, what did you learn about yourself? The transition from assistant to head man, right? again, has so, so little to do with how you write a program and so much to do with everything else. Again, it's, you know, you're one of your questions, you know, on your, on your prep was, um, you know, why, why is this important? Why are soft skills that, that was the very first year I realized that, you know, to be an impactful strength and conditioning coach leader, athletic trainer, physical, whatever. It's like, of course you have to have your knowledge, but to be a leader in the space, there are so many other scenarios that you have to be prepared with that you did not get from your exercise science degree um, in terms of how to communicate people. All of a sudden I have to field calls from like NFL scouts that are wondering how their guys are doing, or they got word back that they don't like the Spanish food. And you have an offensive lineman who arrived at NFL Europe training camp at 350, and now he's 300 and you know, 30 pounds. He lost 20 pounds in a month's time. And just being over in Spain, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to handle his nutrition? And how is my guy, what is my guy's attendance? And oh, you're telling me my guy, you know, we, us, the, I'm just making up a team, the Denver Broncos, we allocated six players to this team. You're telling me three of them aren't lifting, you know, regularly. What is their attendance and what are you doing about it? Mr. Strength coach, right. And discipline problems. And, you know, and then, you know, again, it's a, it's a minor league system. So you have to wear many hats. Yeah. And, and I did all of a sudden I had to oversee team nutrition and work directly with the person at the hotel that was charged with preparing food and the cultural differences between what we like to eat in America and how they actually prepare it. I remember the very first time I, I ordered stuffed peppers, right? And it was mindful enough ahead of time to talk about what got put into the pepper, right? So it was just very tame. Like it was, I think we did turkey meat or ground turkey or something like that mm-hmm. seasoned. And we had already worked through some of the challenges with how it tasted and some of the seasoning. Luckily that team had been going to that town and staying at that hotel. So, so the Barcelona team was one of the original world league teams. Back goes back to 1991 and, and hung on the whole time. And they yeah. had been going back to that hotel every single year. So I caught them at year 10 or 11. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so the staff already knew they came back every spring. So there was a familiarity that was very helpful. But I don't know if anybody ever ordered stuffed peppers before because, <laughs> and I remember this, I got buried by at least 11 or 12 different people. Like, 
the peppers they put out literally looked like it looked like open heart surgery. Like it was just, it was when you see you order stuffed peppers on a menu in your mind, you're like, yeah, this will go over well. It's a little bit different than the the typical burgers we've been doing and pasta and red sauce and everything. That'll be really well. The presentation wasn't there. And it was one of those where every single player, like just walked by the buffet line and gave like this gas face, like, and then just proceeded to leave the restaurant and go out and, you know, order rotisserie chicken down the street or something like no one ate the meal that night. And it's like, it's just a small example of things you don't expect you have to deal with. Yep. And, and again, small staff, like I had to help out and I, I, I watched some film. I remember it was my role to, to scout opposing team tight ends and I had never prepared a scouting report before. So you had to figure out how to do a scouting report. And all that. So it was like, this education that came, like you, you come through your degree, you spend time as an assistant in two different worlds, one college, one pro, and you think you're ready. And all of a sudden you're cracked over the head with this whole new skill set that maybe isn't fully advanced. Like you, you know, we all know how to function as humans, but yeah. to do it on a high level in a high pressure environment and NFL affiliate, I certainly wasn't doing it well, nor did I know that I needed to be prepared to do that well. And anybody that's transitioned from assistant to head, right. to team member to manager in any role, you know, you're immediately faced with that. It's not just a, a head strength coach thing. It's just, it's that hard transition from, you know, teammate to leader. It's yeah. a fascinating, that's a fascinating experience. Mm -hmm. I would say, I've, like I've heard you tell your story a few times and I, I don't know if you've dove into that yet, uh, or at least in previous, um, podcast, but it's interesting in that I would, I would make the, uh, not argument, but the point that you may have learned more about what it takes to get it done. And, and it kind of set the foundation for what you do later. Um, just because you, you wore many hats, you were in a completely different environment than you had ever been in. Uh, and, and you had teams from, you know, us, like you said, the, the Broncos, that, that example that at, like challenge you, like ask you questions, like, and you had to step up and have answers Sure. and you just graduated school, like loans and even set in yet, like, you know, like essentially saying like, you didn't, you just got out of school. So that's, it's impressive. Um, and, yeah, that, and you that stuck was, with it. I that was the eye opener again. Yeah. The concept of you know this transition from uh, assistant to head. It's like when when you're the assistant, you don't you don't even really. I don't know if you naturally recognize the the difficult issues that it's really easy to like punt it to the head guy and go, oh, I'm the assistant. I don't really have to deal with that. That's the head guy's thing, right? And those are like high level conversations when the head coach walks in and he wants an answer. Or when a guy arrives late to a workout and you're looking, okay, well, what are we doing for discipline and who's going to handle that? Yeah. And, and it's easy as an assistant to go, that's not me. It's not really, and, and, and it's real, right? That's, you sure. know, a division of labor. And it's like, that's kind of what the head guy takes care of. It's why he's the head guy. And then you don't have that. All of a sudden you're, you're, you're the guy that has to pick up the phone and you're the guy that has to deal with the guy that walks in late to the weight room. And, and how do you do that and not lose the player to make sure that he comes back in two days for his next scheduled workout and you don't lose the relationship right? Sure. with how you handle it, which is a really tricky, tricky scenario uh, that many people have been through and you know how difficult it is to manage that well. You know, and then with pro sports, sometimes you have to deal with fines and, you know, that that a lot of times is the accountability in pro sports, right? You try sure. to hit them in their in their wallets. But, um, but you're, you, know, you have to report that, right? That's uh, oh, without a doubt. Yeah. Then no, you, can't, and then, yeah. you know, you know l luckily again, it was like the, the it was a relaxed environment. So yeah. I, some of that stuff wasn't as uh, strict as it could be. And certainly not as strict as it was in future jobs. So yeah. that was like a little bit of a, of a, at least a, a, a bridge, right. A, a manageable bridge for me, but, uh, it doesn't, doesn't rid the, the, the topic at all. I mean, that, that's real for sure. Many, many things I wasn't prepared to deal with. So how do you go from, uh, from that experience to the private sector? Yeah. So I and that wasn't direct. I know there are probably a few other side there were a couple. Yeah, no, but, that. but, but it's, it's a good transition because again, that's, it's, it, it fits the theme because now you go to the private sector and you have independent training centers and that brings up a whole new set of challenges where now as a strength, as a team strength and conditioning coach, within reason, they're kind of obligated to walk into your room every day, right? Just as being part of the team. And for the most part, they do. You have your discipline issues and guys that, you know, maybe would rather not have to lift and every roster has those for sure. 
but at least they have to come. They got to walk into the building and it's kind of wired into their job description as athletes. Well, now you go to the private sector and you got to earn your people and you have to market and you have to retain your people once they do walk into the door. And then the dynamic of similar to what you have here too, you deal with youth to adolescent athletes and you're training that person. That's your connection, but that's not the person that's paying the bills. Right. So yep. you got to engage mom and dad sure. too and have a very good relationship with them because they're the ones that are going to you know, obviously make the financial decision to keep you going. So again, brand new set of challenges that you yeah. never had in your cushy team environment that had nothing to do with business. Very, very little to do with business or earning cushy, business. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, but, <laughs> but, relative. but, but cushy in, compared to, in comparison to trying to grow a real business and sure. sustain a business. Um, and again, in my time as director, I worry about, you know, paychecks and making payroll and making sure, you know, the seasonal nature of a sports training center, right? There are some built-in thin months into the calendar for oh, sure. Yeah. So how do, you, uh, how do you set up a system to weather those months and everything and and that was again a brand new learning experience when um when i when i worked there and again started off in a in a performance coach role and then ended up taking on a, a leadership role for a lot of years there as well so so what attracted you to to like the bit to business in that in that case because everything it seemed like uh educational learn different experiences now we're talking like you're running a, a business and yeah. and that's i mean i do some of that here and it's, I mean, it's, it's tough. There's metrics, there's structure, there's analysis, there's, there's people you have to answer to and explain things to, and people look to you for answers to, to lead. So, yep. so what attracted you to that? Well, at the, at the time it was a, it was a very unique opportunity. And I, I remember being kind of blown away at the business model and the layout of the facilities and everything. And the, the, the vision behind that center was kind of very technologically advanced at the time. So I had a friend that, that, that entered that worked for the owner at the time and introduced me to the center. And, uh, I was out of strength and conditioning for a year while I was looking for the next training opportunity. I did some personal training on the side and I worked for a sporting goods company. And this thing came up through a friend he's like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta check out this center. It's only a couple months old and come on and see it. They're doing some really cool stuff. And there was a pro flavor to it because the, you know, the, the primary owner, Steve mountain, he's a sports agent. He's linked up with a bunch of NHL guys and everything. And, and I went there and it was, it was by design built to like, wow you when you walked in, like it had equipment that no one ever see never, no, no one ever saw before high speed treadmills that, you know, run 28 miles an hour and incline up to 40%, you know, you ran on them. Right. And then you <laughs> yeah. walk into the hockey room and you see this ice hockey skating treadmill. Yeah. It's like, who the hell ever knew those existed. <laughs> yeah. Right. And yeah. it's like, wow, this is like, cool. It's not working for a team, but it is training athletes. And I am looking for an opportunity to train athletes again. Let's, you know, let's try to pursue that. And it, and it didn't work out at first, but then an opportunity came up through a contract, right? We talked about that. Yeah. My, my very first role with that company was as a, a contracted, uh, strength coach to a, a local high school, you know, while I worked at the centers part-time as well. So, and, and then, so, so, uh, I, I remember, you know, I remember training there and loved it. And it was, usually I wouldn't go into the hockey room. I'd go to the bathroom, uh, to puke up my guts after yep. running on those treadmills with, uh, Ken Clark. Uh, <laughs> but, um, it was like literally every other Saturday we would do it. I remember driving out there at like 7 a.m. 7, it was early. <laughs> at least in high school, I thought it was early. Mm -hmm. And I knew like I was, it wasn't going to end well. Yeah. <laughs> but we did, we did it. We didn't miss any. And Ken worked us, man. Those treadmills were intense. But I, you're, the wow factor is right. You walk up the steps, at least at Ice Line, and you know you open up the door from the front desk, which was actually it was like a nice round front desk. And you go through another set of doors and you got turf to the right. You got the track. You got squat racks, the platforms, mm -hmm. the two treadmills on the far side, this big mirror, all the bikes, you know, the, yeah. the, the glass and the, the ice. And I'd probably, yeah, there 10, 15 times maybe. Uh, Ken came to us most of the time, but definitely a wow factor. Um, and, and so what did you, you know, from there you went to, you were at a high school. And then tell me how build up from there. Like, how, how do you get from that to the, to your time with the Sixers? Uh, I spent... Uh, I might get the years wrong here. I think nine total years with the company uh, in a, in a number of different roles. And again, I, I will thank the ownership, right? Well, you know, gentlemen that introduced us, Steve Mackle and Steve Mountain, the primary owner, and just created an incredible, incredible opportunity for everybody that worked there during the time. And uh, through 
relationships that that ownership group had created and, and, and carved out for many years in the Philadelphia area, um, the organization was able to earn some pretty high level strength and conditioning contracts in the time. One of them was with St. Joe's University, right? And one of them was with the Philadelphia 76ers. And I was lucky enough to be placed as one of the coaches amongst the staff of, of um, options um, to be engaged in both of those at some point in time. And uh, st- still while maintaining you know, service and hours and at the clinics and all that stuff. But then we had various staff members that would be placed on site at those two places. And we had some high school contracts as well, but those were two pretty prominent strength and conditioning contracts that again, it was kind of the product of the ownership group that were able to, to earn them and, 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 um, and secure those deals where those organizations hired summit as their strength and conditioning coaches, instead of their own full-time staff, they recognized us as that level of expertise. And, yeah. Yeah, and through this time, how did your training philosophies change? Um, well, again, like if you're talking, you know, practicality and system wise, you know, very different when you would write a program for the training center, which, you know, you, you need turnover, right? And you need to honor time and parents, you know, scheduling time to come pick up their kids to drop them off at four. You better have them done it. 515 as you promised at <laughs> yeah. 530 so that you know and then you know you have to get a couple different activities within that time so you know time and opportunity in the schedule is a big constraint when sure. you're putting those programs together as you know in this type of environment so that's a big differentiator for sure um philosophically from a programming standpoint um at the time, again, you're young and you do the best job you can with the knowledge that you have. Uh, I would say from a, a movement selection standpoint and exercise selection standpoint, I, I, I was very varied. I kind of believed at the time that that variation was good, right? And pattern disruption was good. And within mesocycles, I would regularly change things every four to six weeks. And as I look back on it, I probably changed it a little too often. Right. And my evolution with exercise selection is much more like fundamental now. And it's like, do the basics well. And if somebody gets bored in the process, just know that they're getting better by doing the basics really well over and over with, you know, again, you know, the concept, whether you call periodization, you know, by the book or, you know, you're manipulating, you know, volume and intensity all along the way. So that's where the, that's where the changes come. And that's from an exercise selection standpoint. Now you talk about, you know, volume and sets and reps and everything. And I, 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 again, I look back then and all of the stuff I learned about periodization and program design and total volume and everything like that, I, I subscribe to that. And then you live in a world mostly influenced by the NBA and everything. And now I live in a minimum effective dose world for sure. It's like get the most bang for your buck in the least amount of time and allow people to move on to whatever's next, right? And for a lot of years, whatever's next was like, you know, basketball and skill development and oncoming practice and maybe three flights in the next seven days and, and four games and five, five games in the next seven days and everything. So minimum effective dose has, has worked very well for me recently. And I think that applies as well. Even, you know, if, if I moved, I haven't, really had to write a program for a team in a long time. The last part of my job with, even with the Sixers didn't really, didn't really involve writing training programs anymore. But the ones that I have written in the last couple of years, for sure, it's, it's in that space. It's like, let's maximize efficiency. We're going to get a lot done in a short amount of time. And I want to get you out of here right, uh, to whatever's next. So yeah. That's uh, and, and we all go through some degree of, you know, um, you know, resistance to change. And, and I, I remember going through a phase of like, and this is when I knew I was like giddy about learning in physical therapy it was when I started to become more innovative mm-hmm. with like different exercises. And Hey, if I want to like loosen up the lat and do it this way, maybe, you know, and how do I activate eccentrically load the glute medius and like, am I doing an open chain or closed chain? What's functional? Like all this stuff, all this noise essentially. And, and I think we all come back eventually to like, it's about the fundamentals, man. Yeah. You know? So um, how did you become, was it challenging to, to adapt to a, a more efficient, like it was, there, did you personally have to fight any resistance against your own thoughts and beliefs to, you know, to get that kind of effect that you talked about where it's, we only have this much time. Mm-hmm. We need to get the bang for our buck. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone goes through that, right. As you, you evolve your, your systems, right. So, you know, and you, 
probably hang on to some things that you, that you truly value. But, you know, it's, I think it's almost like a professional obligation for all of us to, to continue to stay, you know, with what's out there, at least, at least be open enough to learn it, right? You don't have to adopt everything. Uh, and then you just pluck from that what you think is, you know, would be an effective change for what it is you're doing. And if you do that enough over the course of years, right, all of a sudden you look at the, you know, the, the, you look back at what you did 10 or 15 years ago, you're almost embarrassed by your, pro by your programs. If I dug up, <laughs> dug up that file we were yeah. talking about earlier, you look back and you're like, Oh good gosh. Like you do, you wouldn't be really proud to show this. Although it is a little bit of a badge to show at least you've grown that your programs don't look exactly yeah, like they point. did before. So there's probably some honor in that, but um, yeah, I, I, I would use the term professional obligation. I mean, you have to, there's so our, our world is just, it advances all the time. There's so much great research out there and, and the opportunity to read and learn that research, you know, with just all the different forums out there to discuss and have conversations. And, um, if you're turning your head to all of that and you just stay rooted in what it is you always done, I think you're doing a disservice to your athletes. I think yeah. your clients yeah. and you probably won't last too long. Um, yeah. and speaking of, of lasting, uh, you know, a long time with an organization, uh, how many GMs coaches, uh, went through, the Philadelphia 76ers during your time there? Yeah. So 14 years total with the team, four of those were as a consultant through summit. Right. right? And then, uh, and then 10 uh, full time with the team. And in that time, five head coaches, eight general managers and two different ownership groups, you know, which is a lot of turnover for sure. That is how, in your opinion, how were you able to, to keep your job during that time? Oh, uh, I, I, you know how you get the podcast question a lot, like what's some of the best advice you ever got? Mm -hmm. I'll go back to undergrad again. One of those good friends that, you know, the, the, the flag football team, uh, the student manager flag football team. And it, you know, it was very early and he knew, you know, you working for division one athletics and you're all wide eyed by everything that cool stuff that's going on and the prestige. And, uh, he goes, dude, just keep, keep your head down and work hard. Just, just keep your mouth shut and work hard and, you know, and good things will happen, you know, so I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that's kind of what it had. And that, you know, it served me well, you know, through all of those years, you know, those 14 with the, with the team included where, you know, there are absolutely times again, as a head strength, you have to speak up, right. And you have to step up and lead. Um, but generally it kind of serves you well that, you know, if you're in your weight room and you're just working hard, you build strong relationships with the players and your immediate, your immediate, uh, coworkers and colleagues within the performance and the health department and everything. And, and uh, I, I think, and, and I would also lean on good reporting, right? It was always wired in, again, going back to the summit years where we, we always maintained weekly reports. We always maintained good records. And when new leadership came in, that always served you well in, in, in producing documentation mm. that, that supported, hopefully, what other, you know, the knowledgeable people, I'm sure they did their due diligence on who they were. Again, if a new general manager comes in, they're going to do their work. They're going to find out who's on staff and they're going to, they're going to learn as much as they can about the, the personnel that they're inheriting, both on the roster for sure, sure. right? Most importantly, and then all the staff that cares for them. So hopefully good things were said in advance. You never know. But if they weren't, or if they were, you have some documentation, you know, about, you know, again, the type of job you're doing and you know, you're not bringing in, you know, weight progressions and you know, Oh, this guy gained 30, 25 pounds on his squat. And so, you know, they don't generally care about that, but attendance and body composition numbers and you know, anecdotal notes about how they're doing and progress, right. It, it helped to inform new people about the players and give them maybe another angle that they may not have learned before. And it, that, that served well too. you know, if you can walk in with a binder of reports, right. That documents kind of the work you've been doing and everything that, that I'm, I'm sure that was looked favorably upon too, just from a practical strategy standpoint. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. you, you got your stuff together. Like that, that's what that would tell me. You, mm -hmm. you got your stuff together and you, you know, you have a, a thorough analysis of, of what you're doing and how effective it is and what modifications you've made, et cetera. Uh, I went to PCOM for so while I was at Widener university studying my, you know, for my physical therapy degree, we went to PCOM um, three days a week mm -hmm. for their gross anatomy course. Yep. Uh, and we used to get there at like six in the morning because city lines a mess, uh, especially when you're coming from media, we used to get there at six in the morning. We used to work out uh, and then we would, we would hoop, we would hoop it up on the mm -hmm. court. And I remember a few times like Aaron Mickey would be on the bike just laughing at us. Yeah. 
Like, what is it? What are these kids doing? Why are they even allowed here? Yeah. Uh, but he would always smile and say hi and wave. Nice guy. Um, but so I'm, so I know the resources that you had at PCOM. What was that like? You utilizing the resources that maybe did students have access to some of those in terms of equipment no, and the so team, forth? The team had their own space. Okay. You know, for the, there was a, a, a Sixers only weight room yeah. and a Sixers only training room and locker room and everything, but there were obviously shared hallways, right? Sure. The entrance to the building was common and yeah. the basketball court when, and when we weren't using it for practice, right? Was, you know, it was the rec court for the, for the graduate school. So uh, there was a lot of shared spaces in that rec center for sure. And <laughs> I won't say weekly, but easily monthly, somebody, you know, kind of meandered off the elevator on the third floor and thought the Sixers weight room was the rec room, you know, because there were racquetball courts right around the, oh, right around the corner. So they just kind of lost their way. And you, every now and again, you'd catch a student in there on the, you know, on the leg press machine or something it was like, uh, no, yours is downstairs, but yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. What, what was that like? And, and obviously the facility now in Camden is, you know, is, uh, I would imagine like a, a dream. S- uh, still tops in the, in the league. I, I, yeah. won't, I won't say it's the best. It's obviously a, you know, I was, uh, I was somewhat involved in the, in the design of a couple of the spaces in the building and, um, yeah, they, they I, I'll give credit to the ownership group. They went all out and that still stands as one of the top facilities, I think in the league right now, they did an amazing job. Do you think about your time in Camden and and uh and that PCOM and think like I don't know how, how did I do this with it with the resources given like I don't know how I did it there yeah yeah <laughs> I would think time to time. yeah you you look back at like the size of the room and you know maybe either lack of space depending on what you value or you know the the equipment that was in there and everything and it's like yeah you know there was there were some built-in challenges for sure but you know you figure out a way to get it done how often did you test the uh, you know some of the NBA players that did you test? Yeah. Um, I was more of a, in that environment, it was more of a, you know, testing is training, training is testing type Fair. thing. You just use the the workouts as an indication of guys. Um, I think the general mentality, maybe a little bit unfair to say all of pro sports, but, but it's what I saw in the NBA, like past the combine and that's the real evaluation, sure. like moment. Right. Um, generally not, you know, testing isn't generally looked upon as like a, a positively received thing, right? Certainly not these like reserved, like oh, Wednesday of April 29th is going right. to be testing day and we're going to bring you in. We're going to do max pull-ups and we're going to do, you know, now that, that doesn't go over real well, but it yeah. doesn't, it doesn't defeat the, the, the general purpose of that where you need to evaluate, right? You need, sure. need to be able to demonstrate prob- progress objectively. So you just find other ways to do it. And, you know, now with technology and everything, yeah. it's a, it's a little more accepted where, you know, you bring a guy in and do take some kind of force play, you know, regular jump assessment depth, or a counter movement jump assessment or something. And guys kind of may, might, might accept that a little bit more. How, uh, obviously you said in the amount of time, you know, you had with athletes, uh, were they, was it always one-on-one or was it groups? No. Yeah. Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Many times one-on-one depending on the day. It was, it was, um, you know, the best system that I, you know, that it evolved into was very autonomous, right? You did, you work with the guys on when they feel they will, maximize their weight room time and some guys liked to do before practice and some guys like to do after practice and some guys like to lift on game days right and you know got some real work in there were a handful of guys that like to get heavy lifts in right after the game right throughout different years so you work with them on that you know to some degree and reason and and um and I think a lot of times if you if you give them that autonomy, a little bit of ownership in, in at least some elements of the program, they, they, they give it back to you. I've, I've noticed in strength and conditioning as a whole that the, that the evolution of um, strength training, plyometrics kind of go hand in hand in, in, in speed work, plyometrics, um, has changed over, over the years, right? Like there's not as much of, at least in my opinion, um, good old, like at 90 minutes in the gym doing, you know, three core lifts and nine auxiliary lifts. Um, so I, in my opinion, that's changed. I'm curious what your take is on how the strength conditioning as a whole, and especially at some of those higher levels has yeah. changed. Um, you know, evolved is probably the word, right? Cause you, you know, you end up, you look back and kind of like what we're saying with old programs versus new, sure. there's a lot of common threads. You know, if you, if you looked across the league in different weight rooms and everything, um, I think, you know, when, when you're talking NBA, I think you have to be, you have to be really careful is probably not the best word, but, but just, um, 
mind the idea that you know you can't subscribe kind of one philosophy to a whole team because you have you have different um different groups of people that have different demands on their bodies, particularly in season, right? And, you know, the typical breakdown is like rotation versus non-rotation guys. But there's also this third group of guys, like developmental type guys that that might not see the court unless there's an injury. It's usually, you know, your rookies or maybe even your your older veterans that are like, you know, know, the the third guy in line to get, you know, subbed in. So those are guys that – but they all need to stay in shape, right? Some of them have very different goals. So when you talk about programming, um, I think you have to keep in mind that, and particularly the last, the roster size lends itself well to that, that, that you're individualizing a lot. And for a guy that um, that isn't playing a whole lot of basketball at 7 o'clock at night, right, you can probably, you know, and he's not built into the rotation, and there's probably a you know pretty extreme set of circumstances that would mean he gets subbed into a game, you can train pretty hard on those days, right? But you wouldn't do that with a guy that's about to go play 38 minutes that night, right? And play 38 minutes repeatedly, maybe three or four times in the next seven-day span. Yeah. So you'd very much have to individualize that type of stuff and 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 just prioritize different goals. For those rotation guys, those 8 to 11 guys that play regular minutes, for the most part, you're looking at non-game days like, you know, our driver of decision-making is like, what is the strategy and the schedule and the activity breakdown that's going to prepare him best for the next game. And many times it's rooted in like recovery initiatives, right? You got to get your lifts in for sure. Right. And we want to maintain strength and, um, injury resistance. Um, but a lot of times it might mean an adapted practice schedule, right? And maybe he does, maybe that group that played a lot of minutes does something different or, or maybe it's looked at different. Maybe they, maybe they have a, a lighter practice planned for the entire team anyway, the guys that don't play a lot of minutes come in a little early. That's what you would call low minute, and they're going to get some real five-on-five, five, right? And they're going to go and play some basketball because they didn't get a whole lot of it the night right. before. And then you would adapt your strength and conditioning program around that. That group might do something different that day than the guys that don't do a whole lot of practice. You might be able to lift the rotation guys a little bit heavier that day, right? Right. And then there's this notion that, you know, you want to make your heavy days, right, your intense days, keep, keep them intense, right? maybe build in your heavy lifts that day. And then when you have your lighter days, you can treat them as full recovery days, right? There's a really good book out right now by a, a colleague, a guy I spent some time with in the league, Daniel, uh, Daniel Bove called the quadrant system. And he, he describes that type of system very well, right? You know, just put it into quadrants and you, you know, your number four days should be intense and heavy, right? right? And use your number one days, the recovery days to, you know, and that's how you manage stress best over the course of a pretty chaotic season. Yeah. So, um, I hope that answers your question yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 um, it's, it's a very individualized approach to programming and you really have to kind of look at, and, and by the way, it changes throughout the course of a season. Oh, sure. All of a sudden one injury like changes your whole plan. So, you know, long-term periodization models and yeah, impossible. You know, I got to, I got to a point where I didn't really write things more than two or three weeks in advance. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause you want to be prepared, obviously, you, you know, if you, the time that you do have allotted for, you want to be prepared. And, and if you are stuck in eight weeks out, <laughs> You know, you're yeah, wasting tore, time. Tore up a lot of workouts, <laughs> yeah. a lot of workouts, you know, long-term planning for sure. So, so how did you work with uh, the medical team? Uh, if you don't mind me asking it, like obviously communication yeah. uh, blocked out time for it, uh, challenges with that. I mean, it's because I ask because we, we do it here, yep. right? So, all, all the above. Yeah. At, at uh, different points, different years, different staff members and everything, you know, all versions of that. Uh, luckily, I think almost all of my years, I, I would say all the years, you had good, strong collaboration between those worlds for sure. Good communication. Again, we talked about it, it was a really small and tight staff in my first seven years, minimal, minimal uh, personnel. And that was a world where, you know, you, you met, but it was all generally informal, right? And you got a lot of lunches together and there just wasn't a big staff where you had to really worry about formal structured meeting time. Right. Um, you know, probably no shortage of communication across departments and you got a chance to really, you know, kind of talk about what the others needed and, and the interests of the players. And then you grow to a much larger staff and you do have to really set aside, like you better develop a strong communication system to make sure things aren't missed and you pass along information amongst each other interdepartmentally and then even, you know, the information that needs to get pushed to coaches and front office and everything. And if there isn't a structured system in place, when you have a lot of bodies, things get missed and that's when things go wrong. And I I think that is, that's a, almost a disease of any department where, you know, people 
people don't feel they have the information that they should have to do their job well, that has a way to, you know, sure. very bad things happen within departments, I think, in my opinion. So I think communication systems are incredibly important, particularly for large staffs fortunate enough that you know again every version of it again in a high performance department you have to recognize that people are super busy um at any one point a player could walk in right and you know that one one or two or maybe multiple people need to walk out and address what that player needs that happens a lot so structured meeting time you know you have to be pretty strategic about when you schedule that And, and you have to be comfortable with the hallway chats, the informal hallway chats, and you have to be comfortable with little five minute huddles where, you know, it might not be that sit down big, you know, PowerPoint deck meeting all the time, but we don't always need those. Let's just make sure we pass along information that can help the other departments and, you know, all versions of that. And then there's, you know, a lot of the teams now, almost everyone's, particularly the large ones, have some type of athlete management system where there's there's real software to be able to uh, learn and educate yourself about an injury case or a strength and conditioning case or even testing numbers without the, the need to really pick up and actually talk to somebody. You can just dial it up on your computer and that information has been uploaded to some common, common shared uh, piece of software or something. And that's, you know, very helpful. You know, you don't always necessarily have to reach somebody because, you know, again, high performance team people work at different times. For sure. You have night owls that like to stay up late and take care of their side work. And you have other people that get up at four or five in the morning. And, you know, when people need information about an athlete to plan their day, you know, you don't always want to have to reach out to somebody. You know, sometimes there's good ways to make sure that that's readily available. You know, yeah, have that system in place as well. It, it runs a, like a major corporation. Obviously it is, right? Um, and, and we see that here. Mm-hmm. You know, there are you know, sometimes emails or something isn't being construed the way it should be and it's misunderstood or it's not, um, you know, communicated appropriately and and uh, people get upset. You know, people have questions and it's sure. you know, it's a misunderstanding or a lack of time uh, committed towards the, what we should have discussed and what we actually discussed. And um, but, yeah, I, I, it all makes sense, especially in the digital world we live in now. Uh, everything is like a team's meeting for us, Yeah, you know, and is not as much in person and therefore we have more time allotted towards the team's meeting mm-hmm. and we got to make sure we cover all these things and, you know, people don't want to ask a question behind the screen, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. uh, it, it is, it is a lot of communication and, and, and information moves fast. Oh my gosh. And yeah. like, uh, this is again, let's, you know, talk soft skills and being a great teammate and everything. I, I think, I've said this a lot in response to questions. Uh, I, I think the consideration, if you want to call it empathy, if you want to call it, you know, just, um, you know, great teammate type stuff is that, you know, when, when you think you're the first person that receives some type of important information and, and, you know, in our world, maybe, maybe it's, a. uh, you know, an athletic trainer might receive the first hit of a player that's too sick to come in. Right. And, or maybe he, maybe, and I remember these scenarios happening all of a sudden overnight, like wife went into labor and, you know, compromised sleep. And maybe he's, you know, just little thing, you know, life happens. Right. Sure. You know, a lot of times, you know, you might be the the first person that receives that type of information that by the way, affects a lot of other people within the organization, particularly when it's player centric information. Sure. There's only 15 of those guys, 17 with the, with two two-way guys. So anything that involves those guys and and uh, and their schedule is pretty important information to many many departments. And if you're the first to receive those, it's like it's a really good question to ask. It's like, okay, who 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 would benefit, right? Who who needs this information pretty quickly, right, in order to do their job well and to prepare to do their job well today? Mm-hmm. And what is the best method to get that to them? Right. And best yeah. method is not only the vehicle. Is it a text message? Is it a communication app? Oh, yeah. Is it a quick voicemail? Is it an email? Some of that depends on how you think that the receiver receives information best. Sure. Right. Don't send an email to somebody that you know very rarely checks their emails. <laughs> yeah, right. Because <laughs> yeah. they're not going to get that time sensitive information. There's plenty of people that work off text messages or maybe again, maybe there's an app that you, you, know, you hit them on WhatsApp because that's what they're on the most. Sure. And then what is the package that they'll understand if it's an important information, right? Maybe right. it's data, maybe it's data driven. Maybe you do need to feed a, a graph or a table to somebody to really drive home a, you know, some type of intervention that you want to accomplish that day or something like that. You don't send a spider plot to somebody that doesn't <laughs> understand how to read those. Right. <laughs> Falling on deaf is not, it's not okay. And, and what uh, information? 
Yeah, right? exactly. Like, like, yeah. like, like what specific information, right. how much do they the actually package. need to know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Particularly with leadership, right. And it's sure. pretty high powered, important leadership that are, you know, they have 20 different people tugging at their time and their decision-making at all times. So again, yeah, better refine your message as well and deliver them exactly what it is they need to know, not long drawn out, you know, paragraphs of studies, get to the point, tell them what they need to know to help. Yeah, and, and do it quickly. Yeah. So I'm dying to get into the book and thank you for discussing all, all those things. We will get into Jesse Wright's book, The Intent is to Grow, on next week's part two. So set a reminder and don't forget to tune in. Thank you so much for listening to part one. Thanks for listening to the On Cue Performance Therapy Podcast. If you like this episode, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It would mean so much to me if you could leave us a five-star review so more listeners like you could get this important information. See you next time.